listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to episode 128 of Belaboured. We're going to be talking about the big AT&T strike that just passed, uh, what the workers got, and the work left to be done. But first, the news. The last time we checked in with the UK's Labour Party after the Brexit vote, the right wing of the party was trying to oust its leader, Jeremy Corbyn, for being, well, too left-wing. That attempt failed miserably, and Labour was, well, dealing with dismal poll numbers for a while. Dismal enough that Prime Minister Theresa May called a snap election, assuming that she would shore up her majority in order to push through her Brexit plans. But something rather amazing has happened. It turns out that people actually like Jeremy Corbyn, and what they like even more is Labour's unapologetic left-wing manifesto. I checked in with friend of the podcast and friend of Corbyn, Paul Mason, this week for an update. Let's start with this headline that I just saw, which conservative party source saying we fully expect to fall behind labor in a poll in the coming days. That clearly wasn't what they were expecting when they called this election. No, clearly not. For about eight or nine months, labor has been doing really badly in the polls, down around 25, 26 percent. And the conservatives have been hitting close to high 40 percent. This is because when Brexit happened, you know, you had this huge split within the progressive half of UK society where, you know, some people feel very existentially challenged by Brexit right. and can't accept it. And we're really critical of Labour for saying, well, we have to accept it and come up with a different kind of outcome to Brexit. So lots of the liberal salariat, lots of globally minded people, lots of students, lots of young people were feeling quite sore with Labour for accepting the result of the referendum. This emboldened the Conservatives to call an election. Right. It's not the only reason they called it, but, but it's the main reason is because the split in the progressive camp look unhealable. So that was the situation when Theresa May called the election. But we did two things, we in Labour. First, we spent several weeks designing a manifesto offering that is basically 50 billion extra taxes the, to be spent on universal things, services in Britain, which people value, education, healthcare, university education. So that was the shocking thing, that we were able to put this manifesto together. It then got leaked in an unprecedented manner. But weirdly, the leak dramatised the election. And it was this point when the polls started to move. The other thing I think it's fair to say is that Jeremy Corbyn, who is only really supported by about one third of the candidates standing for Labour right now, is just kicking uh, Theresa May out of the ground uh, in, in every uh, intervention he makes. She won't debate him. She can't appear in public. She won't appear in front of ordinary people. And she really struggles with questioning. Whereas Corbyn, I think, has just revealed his ordinariness. And one of the things that Behind, I don't think this necessarily will happen that we will out, out take overtake them in the percentage polling. Yeah. But if we're even close to that, the reason is because of Corbyn's polling with young people and women, yeah. who, many of whom are just sick of the kind of programmed male suit wearing politicians. Yeah. And Corbyn just comes across as normal. What are some sort of possible scenarios looking at where the polls are now, how much time there is left? 
and where the other parties are. The arithmetic is against Labour for this reason. After 2014, the Scottish referendum, Labour self-destructed in Scotland. So what had been once its stronghold, it now, it, instead of, it, it, there are 49 MPs, it used to have the majority of them, it now has only one. It's been almost obliterated in its major stronghold. This is like the Democrats being obliterated in Chicago, Illinois. Without Scotland, Labour can't rule Britain. What I would expect is, even if Labour carries on its momentum in England and Wales, that is the rest of the United Kingdom, it probably can't win back many seats in Scotland. And therefore, if there is a anti-Tory majority in Parliament, that anti-Tory majority will contain a, subst a substantial contingent of members of Parliament from the Scottish Nationalists who are a left nationalist party. Right. Until Corbyn took over on many issues, they were to the left of Labour. Right. No, they're to the right of Labour, but they're, they're certainly to the left of the Liberal Democrats, and would be to the left, for example, of Hillary Clinton. The, the issue is, can there be not so much a coalition, but a parliamentary arrangement that allows Corbyn to run the government and the SNP to play a part in it? That's going to be the issue. The complicating factor is two-thirds of the candidates for Parliament for Labour don't like Corbyn. And therefore, right. we could be in a situation where at the last moment, they, you know, we've got some very serious pro-capitalist, pro-military industrial complex people inside the right wing of the Labour Party. And I can't predict what they're going to do if it, looks like, if it looks like the most left wing socialist ever is about to win the election of, the, of a P5 country. You know, I, don't, I can't predict what, what is in their heads. Uh, but they're not going to like it. Um, so the question is, can we, the people, the half million members, the millions of people who will vote Labour, pressure them and persuade them to take part in a left-led Labour government? If not, we, we'll be in a constitutional crisis because the Conservatives could quite easily lose the election but remain the largest party in that situation. Uh, very, un You get the opposite of what Theresa May is promising. She's promising strong and stable government but it, it may be that we get a very unstable government and some commentators here are predicting a second election. That's all if, because the big if right now is whether or not Labour can maintain its momentum. It's been relentlessly climbing up the polls. I've never seen anything like it. In fact, season 50, people who've been in cephology for 50 years have never seen a party come from the mid-20s to the high-30s in a space of, of three weeks. So we just can't predict. If you, however, what you've got to remember, what your your readers have got to remember, is that Theresa May called this election to get a hundred plus majority in Parliament. Right. That's what was predicted. She needs whoever wins needs a strong majority to negotiate the Brexit. If she gets anything less than one hundred plus majority, she's lost. If she loses MPs, she'll have to resign, even if she has the strongest party. Uh, but my goodness, if Labour win, this will be one of the most spectacular self-destruction events of neoliberal conservative in history. I mean, the, the polls told her she could absolutely wipe the floor with Labour. And this is, I think she could have, if she'd have fought a positive campaign on the ideals and ideas she actually believes in. But she had this utter disdain of the, of the electorate to the point where she didn't even fight. She just hid and then kept attacking Corbyn, and they assumed Corbyn was their secret weapon, and it turns out he's our secret weapon. That was journalist Paul Mason, and we will have an update on the results of the UK election next episode.
Once again, the universal basic income is the biggest buzzword in the debate over the future of work and the crisis of inequality. But now we have some concrete numbers to do a real evaluation of how realistic a policy of basic income for all is. Well, there have been some empirical studies of UBI's impacts. Researchers are primarily focused on pilot projects in the global south. Now, the Roosevelt Institute has probed the question of how the system might work in a relatively wealthy country like the U.S. According to Ayana Marinescu of the Roosevelt Institute, the UBI is on balance pretty promising in terms of its ability to enhance quality of life even in a wealthy industrialized country and to achieve the economic security that many people uh, would otherwise not get. However, the results are highly contingent on social factors and careful safeguards are needed to ensure that the system is ultimately sustainable. Here's Marinescu talking about her findings. The programs that you were looking at, do you see any prospects for experiments like this being replicated elsewhere in the United States and how, how scalable or how replicable do you think that this model could be to the extent that they are found to be economically beneficial for people? Actually, I've started from work in that um, area, trying to think about whether it's replicable. First of all, in terms of states that have uh, natural resources, uh, this is uh, the model that was used by Alaska is something that they could consider doing. Of course, that's only some of the states, but for example, states that now have fracking, you know, that's something that they could do, for example. And another model that uh, I'm really interested in is the model of a carbon tax. So, you know, which there's other reasons for doing a carbon tax. But uh, if we levy a tax on the carbon content of fuel, we can redistribute the proceeds of the tax on an equal basis to every state resident. And some states, like Washington state, already had a referendum about something a little bit along those lines, not quite like the redistribution wasn't exactly like a UBI, but similar in uh, in October. It was rejected, but only by, you know, I think it was 56% no, so it's not that far. So I think it's interesting to follow. Uh, for example, that's one way how you could, you know, because you have to basically have some source of revenue. That's, that's the key. So in all the programs or the casino, you know, that's for the, Native American tribes, they have a source of revenue so that they can then distribute uh, this cash. So on a practical level, the state has to find a source of revenue. Just like a lotto, you know, these are revenue sources that kind of end up being sort of mini windfalls or I guess in in Alaska's case, a big windfall um, that comes from an external source, essentially. I mean, you're having an injection of capital. In the case of the carbon tax, you know, any state could do it. It's just a matter of the commitment to both the principle of the carbon tax and to then rebating the carbon tax as a, you know, cash uh, transfer, which, by the way, is actually a proposal made by a conservative uh, group of economists, very prominent economists, to have this carbon tax rebated on a per capita level. So I personally think that the link with UBI is absolutely fascinating. It won't be enough to live on. But I think, you know, it's an interesting, if you're asking about feasibility, you know, I'm thinking what is politically attainable in the short run. 
Yeah. Um, in terms of the carbon tax specifically, because that does seem like something that a number of states are looking at, what I've actually been hearing, and, and I think there's some, certainly some justification, um, you know, from a, from sort of a redistributive standpoint that um, they would want the the dividends from the carbon tax to be structured progressively so that the people who are most impacted um, would, would be getting more of that benefit. Um, is there room within the UBI framework to have something that is um, progressively redistributive like that? And I guess more broadly, you know, how can the UBI be structured in a way that actually reduces inequality? So, I mean, in the case of the a carbon tax, Canadian states also already have that. Uh, uh, so uh, Alberta, for example, just inter- introduced it recently. Uh, and I believe another state has had it for a while. But in a, And they do uh, some of this trying to uh, redistribute it. But there's many different ways our states have been doing that. And I'm not aware of any of them that redistribute in this, like, per capita basis, which is the most similar to uh, a basic income. So... In terms of redistribution, here's the thing. Uh, the Treasury just had a technical paper out in January looking at this exact proposal of having a carbon tax that is redistributed on a per capita basis. This was calculated at the national level, so federal level. And they calculated that for, you know, a decent carbon tax that, you know, they had some, it was based on some proposals people had made, um, you could redistribute about uh per person per year to everyone uh, in the U.S., and then they looked at the progressivity. And it turns out that under this scheme, the uh, lowest decile of income would gain 9% in income, whereas the top decile would lose 1%. So it would be redistributive because essentially carbon taxes tax more heavily richer people, de facto because they have higher energy use. And that would have the additional impact, I guess, of uh, encouraging people to conserve the the more you consume. Right. So it's kind of a double whammy. I mean, for those who are interested, of course, not uh, this is not a popular idea everywhere. But in states that um, are you know more interested in this kind of environmental action, I think it could uh, gain political traction. And that's the purpose of my current other work to survey you know, uh, uh, people in all states and understand where this could be done, you know, where where is the first place uh, that would be most amenable to something like that. Just like, you know, we had gay rights. It started somewhere. And another thing, obviously, that um, this free cash uh, might substitute for is um, a direct payment into, you know, a taxpayer-funded social spending program. And, you know, obviously... The way our current welfare system works now, much of it is devoted to government-directed spending. And, you know, you can obviously see benefits in both, giving the money directly right. to people and spending it on, say, like universal health care or something like that. Do you have a sense from your research as to what mix is appropriate, given that ultimately, I mean, it's not like people will stop needing health care once they all get right. UBI because you don't live in yes. a perfect free market system, so- et cetera. So I think this is something that is at the frontier of research, like thinking about the mix and what are the costs and benefits of different mixes is not something that I've seen, you know, uh, conclusive or exhaustive research on because I think, you know, um, we don't yet have enough evidence on 
kind of a you see all those small experiments like you know when they did the negative income tax experiments they don't really affect sort of the broader social system but if you did it say already in a in a whole state you know that becomes more relevant irrelevant sorry but but the the bigger point is that many advocates think that the UBI should replace you know all other social services but but some people think that that's not right and in fact there was a survey of uh, economists that proposed to replace uh, all social services including healthcare with UBI and almost everyone was against it and one of the common arguments was that they felt that people still needed health insurance. So, you know, I don't think we have a clear answer to that, but I think there is a feeling in the profession that it's perhaps not uh, reasonable to replace absolutely every benefit uh, with uh, the UBI. So therefore, it seems like there's some support for, uh, you know, some sort of mixed system, but I will say this hasn't really been thought through. So... And that was Ioana Marinescu of the Roosevelt Institute. Since the election of Donald Trump, episodes of white supremacist vandalism, threats, and violence have seemed to be on the uptick nearly everywhere. The recent stabbings in Portland, where two were killed and one injured but for trying to halt a racist Islamophobic assault on public transit, have many people wondering what the correct response is when faced with vicious white supremacy. Well, the longshore workers at the Port of Oakland have one answer, solidarity. What was described as an unspecified number of nooses have been found at the port in recent weeks. Back in November, the port was defaced with a racist slur. On May 25th, the workers acted. They walked off the job and shut down the port. Container trucks were backed up down the street as the workers refused to come back onto the job. We believe it's a bona fide health and safety issue because of the history behind the noose and what it means for black people in America, Derek Mohammed, secretary treasurer with the ILWU, told reporters. This is a dangerous occupation already. This adds something that totally makes people feel uneasy, makes people feel unsafe, and it's distracting. We need our people to be as focused as possible. The workers returned to the job after negotiations later that day, and investigations are underway to figure out who is displaying the nooses. But the workers' prompt response should remind us all that we are not powerless against white supremacy, and in fact, one of the most powerful tools to resist it is the strike. In Portland, meanwhile, solidarity is also the solution to the white supremacist attacks and continuing attempts by the so-called alt-right to rally and win supporters. The Amalgamated Transit Union Division 757, which represents workers on the public transit system where the stabbings occurred, put out a statement in support of the victims opposing the placement of police on public transit and calling for instead the use of trained, paid advocates from the community to de-escalate and respond to dangerous situations. The ATU and other unions have also promised that they will turn out to counter-protest the far-right rally planned for this weekend, June 4th. Painters Local 10, IATSE Local 28, Laborers Local 483, AFT Local 3544, the Graduate Teaching Fellows, as well as Carpenters Northwest Regional Council and AFT Oregon are part of a coalition of labor groups that's calling itself Portland Labor Against Fascists. Outside of this coalition, but also promised to attend the rally and oppose the far right, is Carpenters Local 1503. Portland has a powerful labor movement built on the principle that an injury to one is an injury to all, Ashley Jackson, a spokesperson for the coalition, said in a statement. We need to use labor's power to put that principle into effect on June 4th. Well, Puerto Rico is officially still spiraling into chaos, crushed under a mountain of toxic debt that spiraled out of years of predatory exploitation by big banks. 
Um, the island has taken an even worse nosedive in recent weeks because of the shuttering of schools, as well as frantic efforts um, to shore up its pensions um, in exchange for massive austerity cuts. Um, and it's all in hopes of restructuring its economy um, in exchange for a modified bankruptcy deal known as PROMISA, which Congress pushed through as a hardline sort of bailout, even though technically Puerto Rico is not really eligible for a bailout under federal law due to its uh, colonial status. Um, but in any case, uh, what's, what substitutes for bankruptcy is a terrible austerity plan that includes uh, huge cuts that will devastate the public sector and what's left of its public service infrastructure and bring even more poverty to an island that is already losing many of its workers to a mass exodus of outward migration. Now, the roots of the crisis are manifold, but uh, one big strand of it was recently investigated in a recent report uh, published by the Committee for Better Banks and the AFL-CIO. It charges that the head of PROMISA, Carlos Garcia, is actually part and parcel of a system of financial corruption that drove Puerto Rico so deep into debt in the first place. Garcia was formerly head of Puerto Rico's Government Development Bank and its Public-Private Partnerships Authority. Both of these entities were charged by the conservative government with drawing investment capital into the crumbling public sector. Um, but Garcia led the abrupt liquidation of an infrastructure fund known as the Corpus Account, and it was one of the few publicly financed vehicles for infrastructure projects that the island desperately needs, things like ensuring, you know, sanitary systems and clean water for people, things that would come in handy if they're combating, say, an epidemic like the Zika virus, for example. And uh, his massive privatization deals, um, which also overlapped, by the way, with a massive sell-off of the telephone company to corporate investors, um, this apparently benefited Garcia's former employer, Santander Bank, quite a bit. The report targets Garcia's ties to Santander as evidence that both he and the company have ruthlessly exploited Puerto Rico's public sector for private gain. Santander is also the target of the Committee for Better Banks campaign for financial justice and banking reform across the United States. It has long criticized the bank for promoting predatory lending in poor communities and mistreating workers. Drawing analogies with the brutal austerity programs imposed on Greece and other debt-strapped European nations, the Committee for Better Banks report concludes that only direct economic stimulus, rather than all this uh, endless public debt um, and not a one-time federal bailout, is the only thing that's going to sustain uh, an economic restructuring for the better for the island. But, uh, you know, well, we all know what the prospects for that are. To learn more about the Puerto Rican debt crisis, go to our episode discussing Puerto Rico's situation with CUNY professor Hector Cordero Guzman, episode 107. After the successful Verizon strike of last year, where community allies joined Verizon workers on the picket lines, presidential candidates outdid one another in support of the workers, and the workers won many of their major demands, you'd think that employers would think twice before messing with the Communications Workers of America. And yet at AT&T Mobility, negotiations drag on. 
So last week, tens of thousands of workers around the country went on a three-day strike, mobilizing their neighbors and friends once again to stand by them as they demonstrated to the bosses that the Trump era didn't mean they are not going to fight. I spoke with CWA's Robert Master about the strike, the similarities and differences with the Verizon struggle, and what is next for the workers. The AT&T contract fight got to a point where the workers called a a three-day strike. So it's a little longer than the one-day strikes that our listeners are, are used to hearing about, but still a sort of limited strike. So talk about the decision to do that and um, the, the build-up to that. Yeah, so, you know, the contract at AT&T Mobility expired on February 11th, and right. uh, very little progress had been made in bargaining. Um, and, you know, we kept pushing and pushing, and, and nothing was happening. Right. Um, and this is a bargaining unit which is relatively young, uh, both in age and, and in and how long it's been around as a bargaining unit. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, we felt that at this point in the struggle, you know, the thing to do was to send a warning shot across the bow of AT&T and, you know, in a way it was, it was, uh, a test of our capacity, which, Mm -hmm. you know, we feel like we passed with flying colors, like the the turnout, uh, you know, in the strike across the country exceeded our expectations. Uh, people were really militant and united. Um, and now we're, you know, preparing for the next phase of the fight. Yeah, and it's interesting. It seemed to me that it very much built on the networks and the grounding from the Verizon strike. Like the same people that I saw that had been doing picket line support were doing that um, and were sort of very quickly mobilizing for that this time. I think it's true that that, that folks on the outside, you know, and from our allies in, in the community and other parts of the labor movement, you know, definitely showed up again, yeah. um, you know, as strongly as ever uh, to be supportive. It's a very different group of workers. Right. Um, and what's extraordinary about the three-day strike was, you know, we can't find exact documentation, but we think this is the biggest national strike of retail workers uh, that anybody can remember. Yeah. Um, and there, there are about 21,000 involved in the mobility campaign. Right. Uh, about two-thirds of them work in the AT&T stores. Another third are in call centers. Right. Um, and so this is, you know, this is a, a whole new thing for them. Right. Um, and, and they've got very, very important issues which, you know, uh, resonate uh, very broadly because of, of uh, you know, the substandard way in which they're being treated by AT&T. Right. right. It is interesting. I've just been working on a, a long, long story on retail workers, um, mostly in like clothing retail, but still, um, yeah, that we are sort of not used to massive retail chain strikes like this. Um, For sure. And, and I, you know, I do think that, you know, in our case, uh, the folks at AT&T, and, and there were, you know, 17,000 uh, AT&T workers uh, on the landline side of the house in, in California, Nevada, who were also on strike right. uh, during those three days. Um, I think our folks, you know, took a lot of inspiration from the Verizon strike. And, and mm-hmm. I would add that the RWDSU has had some terrific organizing wins, yeah. um, you know, at some of these retail outlets in the city, I think HMM and mm-hmm. a couple of others. So, you know, there's definitely a tendency here where, and, and obviously the fast food workers are retail workers. And so, you know, it seems like, you know, after all these years of kind of just taking it, uh, retail workers are starting to stand up. But for our workers, it's, you know, they have, many of them have literally seen their wages go down over the last uh, few years of this contract because the company manipulates commissions, manipulates sales goals. So that, um, you know, people, there, there are some stories of people making $10,000 a year less than they were in the beginning of this time frame. And, and that, you know, that's what motivates someone to say, I've had enough. Yeah. 
Yeah. So after the strike, it's been uh, almost a couple of weeks. Where are things now? What are sort of the the things that are still sticking points? Um, What's going on? Yeah. So um, I I don't have the latest update on bargaining. I'm not exactly sure whether or not folks are at the table. Um, I should check that for you. Uh, But you know, we are, are, you know, figuring out our strategy for the next phase of the campaign. The issues on the table are the same. It's, it's this issue of, of getting a, a fair deal on the commissions and getting, uh, you know, a consistent and fair level of compensation. Cost of health benefits has relentlessly risen uh, during the life of the contract. And the company keeps insisting uh, on forcing the workers to, uh, to pay more. You know, which in the context of a company that's making a billion dollars a month and paid its top five executives $75 million last year is, you know, it's just simply unfair. Um, and then we've got the other big issue of job security, which is, as as you probably read, uh, thousands of, of call center jobs have been lost, 12,000 uh, since, I believe, 2011. Many thousands of them have been uh, offshore to the Dominican Republic, to El Salvador, to Mexico, to the Philippines. And a lot of the retail jobs are being spun off to these authorized dealers who are, you know, run these franchise uh, operations, not company stores, where people are making nine, ten dollars an hour, depending on the level of the minimum wage in their location. So, um, you know, this is really a fight to ensure that we have good jobs at a company, the 10th largest company in America, which is enormously profitable and can afford to share its success with with its workers. Right. And in in terms of thinking about, again, jobs of the future, we talked about this around the Verizon strike, but still true, right? When we're talking about mobile phones, we're talking about mobile technology, we're talking about things that are not going away the way they would argue with the, you know, wireline side that maybe those are. Right, right. I mean, look, I, I think that, that the, the disappearance of, of, of wired phone service and Internet service is overstated. Right. Uh, you know, you see these reports where Verizon's got a brand new contract with Corning Glass to buy, you know, gazillions of miles of new fiber. But having said that, I think you're absolutely right, right? This wireless is definitely seen as, as the technology of the future. Wireless for both Verizon and, and AT&T is a total cash cow, you know, giant profit driver inside these, these mega companies. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, they are getting away with, with uh, paying people uh, much less than what they've historically paid on the landline side because, you know, we haven't had the kind of fight that we need to have, and now we're having it. Yeah. Yeah. So when the Verizon strike was going down, um, obviously it was the middle of the presidential campaign and you had Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton um, fighting to be on on the workers' side. And you even had Donald Trump at the time pretending that he cared about working people. Um, yeah. Now we're in Trumplandia. Um, how does this feel different? You know, the, the interesting thing is it doesn't feel that different um, in the sense that the level of popular support and the level of support from elected officials Senator Merkley in Oregon was on the picket line two hours after the picket line went up in in Portland, Oregon. Um, And we had that kind of response all around the country. So um, people forget that uh, even though Trump got elected, part of the reason he got elected, I would say, is that people were sick and tired of the status quo. Obviously, that was shot through with on on the part of Trump voters with a lot of other ugly stuff. But you know, this was a vote against the status quo and a vote in many ways against 
the ways in which uh, working class people have been left behind uh, in this country by the corporate elites. And so, um, you know, obviously, you know, having having the strike in, in 2016 in the middle of the New York primary and, and, you know, the primary season, you know, was very, very helpful because there was so much talk in the primaries about corporate power and the need to fight it. But I, I feel like the, the, the popular support is, you know, broadly speaking, very much the same. People are still really, really angry at corporate America. Yeah. And I, I suppose also in the, the sort of resistance moment, what you're seeing more people joining organizations, whether that be DSA, which I know was organizing, you know, picket line support to um, all of these, you know, different groups, people are perhaps a little bit more organized now than they were and ready to come out and support something like the I, I mean, the DSA stuff. thing is, is worth mentioning because uh, they showed up at over 50 picket lines uh, on, you know, a couple of days notice because we didn't announce the strike until I think Wednesday before it started on Friday, yeah. uh, all across the country. And DSA has quadrupled in size since election day. Um, and, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it was just a remarkable outpouring of support from, you know, mostly young people who, who showed real sympathy for the worker struggles. What else should people know about what's going on at AT&T? Well, I think that the battle is going to keep going on. And I think, you know, what we need to demonstrate to AT&T is that they can't get away with this kind of stuff. You know, um, they have historically kind of slid by here in terms of um, uh, really being the focus of, of the kind of attention that we've been able to place on Verizon in the past. And, and that's got to change because, um, you know, like I said earlier, the 10th largest company in America, Randall Stevenson, made $28 million last year. They need to be embarrassed, shamed uh, about the way they are treating uh, this new generation of workers. And now for an international perspective on the labor issues facing AT&T, I talked to two call center labor organizers in the Dominican Republic, Oliver Benson and Hanoi Sosa, about the challenges they face trying to organize with a major AT&T vendor offshore. My name is Hanoi Sosa. I'm an union organizer here in Dominican Republic with the Dominican Federation of Free Trade Zone Workers. Also, I'm the Secretary General of the National Union of Coal Center Workers. What we do, Feltrazonas, which is a Dominican Federation of Free Trade Zone Workers, along with the National Union of Coal Center Workers, is to um, provide support to workers who are in conditions of overexploitation and needs to need to organize and form unions to effectively um, fight for the rights. In Dominican Republic, but specifically within the free trade zone system and more specifically within the coal center sector, are um, pretty low. And I'm talking about, when I say low, I'm talking about low salary and poor labor conditions and unhealthy work environment, serious violation to the labor code of the Dominican Republic, along with other violations of human rights and, and labor rights. So, for example, the average salary within the coal center sector in the Dominican Republic is equivalent to $2.75, which is really low. And workers are forced to work long hours. These hours uh, are not properly paid, and in many, many cases, they are not paid at all. Um, and I'm talking about overtime. Workers are, are, um, have deductions like payment deductions when they need to go to the bathroom or when they need to go grab some water so they cannot make a quick stop to go to the bathroom or go grab some water because they'll be losing money. 
So we're fighting against all that. We've been organizing workers in different companies, and we've been trying to form unions in order to all together um, claim for better labor conditions. I know, Oliver, you've been involved with the conditions at uh, AT&T. Talk about what you've experienced trying to organize there and what your relationship is to the broader trade union movement. With this um, federation, is you know, to organize all workers inside of the Teleperformance, that is a company for which I work and uh, where we have uh, the project for AT&T, it's called Cricket, you may know it. And what we're doing is try to let the people know all the things that the company is, is doing against their rights, all the abuses and um, the conditions that we must change. That actually we are all part of the, like I'm used to say colonization, because we have these companies who came from other countries to our um, Dominican Republic, and they take an advance of our culture and our, uh, we can say, law education and our poor economy. So uh, they do all that they want to do with us. And as well, like, we don't have no um, support by the government. The government just uh, let the, these companies came in, uh, in our country, but they don't do nothing about lowest salaries and uh, the uh, bad treatment uh, against employees and of course with people who wants to make unions inside of a company which is a right that we have by the law. Is there some kind of labor regulator who should at least by law be be protecting you against that? Yeah actually we have uh, the Ministry of Labor here but they don't do the work that they're supposed to do to be honest with you. I mean it's uh, as I said before, it's one of the things that the companies make at bench. They know that we have a lot of corruption in our country. And things here are, are not, you know, there's a lot of people who doesn't do the things very well that we can say. And um, as the ministry doesn't do almost nothing for no one, you know, that's what happened then, that... All, all people want to do a union because they know that, like by the union, they're gonna get the, what they are looking for, the, the benefits, the real benefits, and the real good conditions on your workplace. You talked about the role of international solidarity in this. Many workers are saying in the U.S. they're very frustrated with uh, seeing their jobs be um, offshored, and they see that as a source of loss for them. And you can certainly see that if they can pay lower salaries somewhere else, then they will move uh, those jobs out to call centers in places where the labor is, is less expensive. How do you treat workers on both sides of the border in a fair way and, and also ensure that everybody is able to, to get decent work? Yeah, we totally understand that. You know, we, we totally understand how they feel because we have experienced the same. Just to give you an example, by 2005, there was in the Dominican Republic around 4,000 Afridre-zone factories, only in the textile sector. From those almost 4,000 factories, now today we have less than 500. Many of these factories have moved to countries like Bangladesh, like Honduras, where they can implement even lower labor conditions than in the Dominican Republic. So we know how it feels. We know what happened. And so we understand when workers in countries like the United States have been experiencing companies offshoring their job positions or job possibilities to other countries. We understand that. 
And But we have to say that that's why we need to work all of us as one. That's why we need more international solidarity. Because it's not about improving labor conditions in the Dominican Republic. It's improving labor conditions everywhere. If we create, if we, let's say, globalize the union movement as the economy has been globalized, then we can create fair labor conditions everywhere. So companies will not go from the Dominican Republic to Honduras or will not go from um, from United States to will not come from United States um, to the Dominican Republic or, or whatever, because we will have a standard of labor conditions. Because what they're exporting is not jobs. What they're exporting is exploitation. When these companies come from countries like the United States, where they cannot, for example, force workers to work overtime and then not pay for this overtime, but they come to the Dominican Republic because they can do that, what they're exporting is, are not job opportunities. They're exporting exploitation. The exploitation they cannot implement in countries like the United States because you have a very clear set of rules. They're exporting it to the Dominican Republic because of our institutional weakness. But if we work all together, if we fight all together, you know, if we solidarize each other, we can at some point um, demand all together better labor conditions everywhere. And they, they will, companies will not uh, move from one country to another because they're looking for opportunities based on lower labor standards. They will Maybe they will move from one country to another because you're looking for better investment opportunities, which is a whole other thing. But we need to work together to eradicate this system of modern slavery, this system of overexploitation. Because, like I said, what they are exporting is exploitation from one country to another. We understand that. We understand how these workers feel. And we have felt the same. There are workers uh, at at and right now who are thinking about possibly going on strike. You know, they're, they're lucky enough to have a union, actually. What would you say to them right now as they're contemplating, you know, taking action in their own workplaces to hold on to their own jobs? Uh, well, we want to say, first of all, we want to say thank you to workers from at and uh, We had a delegation a couple of days ago. There was a delegation visiting the Dominican Republic, and they showed us their solidarity. They participated with us in some direct actions and demanding better labor conditions for workers in the Dominican Republic. So we want to say thank you to them because of that, because that's, you know, that's a proof of solidarity that we really appreciate that means a lot to us. Second of all, we want to say that we support them. We support their fight for better labor conditions. And, you know, whatever we can do for them, we'll be more than willing to do it because, you know, that's that's what we want. That we believe that that's what we as working class need, insurrection, people willing to fight, people willing to claim for, for the rights, people willing to claim what they deserve. So we, we are with them, uh, um, you know, our hearts are alongside with them, and uh, we wish to be able to do better in, in order to support them. We understand their fight, and their fight is, is in some way, their fight is our fight. What are the prospects you see for forming, uh, in, at the, in the most ideal sense, some kind of overseas, you know, cross-border union? I know that Uni Global and these other sort of global federations are trying to move towards that. Do you see maybe call centers as one place where that kind of thinking can, can begin? Yes, definitely. And we are, like, giving steps towards that. As you mentioned, Uni Global, they are helping us. They are trying to construct... In the beginning, some sort of network where we can all come together and share experiences and provide support to each other and show our solidarity. 
And then in the future, and I would say in the near future, there will be possibility for organizing worker in a strong way so we can work together, fight for the same issues in a coordinate, coordinated way and, you know, and take coordinated actions, not only in the region, but all around the world. Uniglobal has over 20 million of affiliates. And just to give you an example, now in the teleperformances campaign, we are here in the Dominican Republic, we are receiving the support of workers from many countries, workers from Germany, workers from Spain, workers from France, workers from Morocco, workers from Tunisia, workers from um, Argentina, workers from El Salvador. So we, we they are perfectly aware of what's going on in the Dominican Republic. They're paying close attention to what's going on in the Dominican Republic. So I think that's a huge step. So in the near future, we're going to have the, the possibility to do that, to, to organize some sort of international um, union, a global, an, an actual global union where we work together, we fight together in a coordinated way. I believe so. Any actions coming up? Um, anything we should be looking out for in the DR here in the United States? Well, from afar, I will. I wish that the social media from the United States come here to the Dominican Republic and see film, make the um, a movie to let the world know what is going on here. That's not like we are having a uh, the dream of jobs here, and uh, what is the real condition of our country, and what. Those the people from call centers feels when they are getting out of the company when they are finalize their shift. How like well when with uh, people from AT and T the union was here they went out from one of the house from our uh, co-workers they saw the situation they they feel they went over there they see how this person lives and the conditions and I mean he's working in one the, the supposed uh, best job that we have here but you can see the condition of this person and it's not you know it's not the same uh, well we also want to say that well we we have nothing against these corporations you know we appreciate their business we, we appreciate their foreign investors coming to countries like Dominican Republic and starting their operations here and we need more job opportunities for our people we so we we have nothing against them i mean and so we we believe that it is really important to our development what we are fighting for is for better labor conditions we are demanding this corporation to treat us as human beings not as things not as assets you know we believe in a society based on people over profit not profit over people which is what we have seen um so far we, it is not about it's not only about dominican republic you know we're fighting for it from our fight from our little space in the world we're fighting for every single worker wherever there is a worker who's not receiving a living wage wherever there is a worker whose rights are not being respected or observed that model must be eradicated and must be switched to a model where labor rights and human rights are observed and respected. That, that's what we're fighting for. And that was George Benson and Hanoi Sosa, two call center labor organizers based in the Dominican Republic, talking about why they're in solidarity with the AT&T strikers. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. 
Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces that we wish we had written but did not. So everyone has memories of an early job that changed their outlook on life, whether it was miserable or thrilling. The New Yorker, in its series on the job, gathered stories of early forays into the world of work by some prominent authors, and it reminds us that no matter who you are, everybody struggles to define for themselves what is the purpose of work. And often, there is none! Richard Ford talks about the jarring realization that the work he thought he was doing for charity for poor black youth in Alabama wasn't quite as noble as he had wished. The 23-year-old liberal do-gooder from a working-class Midwestern family had always thought of his family as working people and had held various jobs as a kid. So when he went to do work with the Great Society in Flint, Michigan as part of the Youth Corps program, Um, He was hoping to teach inner-city kids about the value of a hard day's work. In this case, it was clearing brush with the scythe, mainly to keep young men occupied, lest idle hands find devil's work to do. Ford reflects today on the ridiculousness of the spectacle. He writes, quote, These were not stupid boys. They weren't being paid much, if anything. Only helped. The fact that I had a job that depended on them and was intended to keep them out of mischief and assure social justice and cure poverty conferred no mission on their lives. At their tender ages, they already seen things, many things that I hadn't. They recognized the hard, pointless, idiotic toil when they saw it. And in that way, the summer of 67 passed with me down in the underbrush showing these black kids how work was done while they calmly looked on, waiting for their futures to arrive. And this anecdote really exposes the naive attitude of people like Ford, as well as where the civil rights movement was at this point in time, how young people were justifiably becoming increasingly jaded with the economic circumstances they had been dealt and a sense of frustration as well as bemusement at this uh, white kid uh, sweating in front of them. The work was educational, but not for the boys. It taught Ford that um, it's often the privilege to ascribe moral value to the pointless work that working class people often do. But ultimately, this is a self-serving exercise, and the boys, just for that afternoon, held power over Ford by humbling and bewildering him with their gaze. And suddenly Ford was working for their approval, and it was that relationship that defined the work for him, not what Ford had thought was the moral value of what he was doing for them. Another unexpected lesson is found in Toni Morrison's account of her first job as a domestic worker for a woman who heaped back-breaking tasks on her as a young woman. She struggles to maintain her pride even though she feels systematically disrespected, and when she complains about her job to her father, haltingly, he imparts a lesson about what work should and shouldn't mean compared to everything else in your life, and he kind of concludes, not much. But she takes away something deeper. Um, She reflects, I saw no sympathy in his eyes, no, oh, you poor little thing, perhaps he understood what I wanted was a solution to the job, not an escape from it. In any case, he put down his cup of coffee and said, listen, you don't live there, you live here with your people. Go to work, get your money, and come on home. 
And Toni Morrison takes away a few things from this. Number one, whatever the work is, do it well, not for the boss, but for yourself. Two, you make the job, it doesn't make you. Three, your real life is with us, your family. And four, you are not the work you do, you are the person you are. Um, and she writes, I've worked for all sorts of people since then, geniuses and morons, quick-witted and dull, big-hearted and narrow. I've had many kinds of jobs, but since that conversation, my father and I have never considered the level of labor to be the measure of myself. And I've never placed the security of a job above the value of a home. Similarly, Akhil Sharma has a brilliant dissection of how uh, work as the other can redefine both the boss and uh, the worker. As an immigrant, he knows exactly what kind of narrative to spin to his prospective boss uh, that subtly plays on their egotistical sense of superiority. After a few interviews in which I saw my interlocutor flick his eyes over my resume and register that I had no relevant experience, Sharma writes, quote, I decided to start lying. I began telling interviewers that throughout high school and much of college, I had worked night shifts at 7-Elevens and gas stations. I came up with this lie because I was Indian and was used to being seen through stereotypes, used to being asked if I spoke English or was studying to be a doctor. The reason I chose this particular lie was that people love the hardworking immigrant who makes good narrative. It allows them to feel that they live in a benign, meritocratic world to believe in a back-channel sort of way that they're deserving of their success. So what he's doing here is a clever psychological trick, and I guess that's what he really learns from this job, which is really the job of lying. Um, that's really the true value of work, whether it's all a dream, a pointless exercise, or a bitter act of self-exploitation to prove that you're better than your job is. At the end of the day, work is what you make of it, no matter what the boss tells you. After the candidacy of Andy Puzder for Labor Secretary was halted thanks to an all-out offensive by workers, Labor's biggest enemy in the Trump cabinet is probably, although it's close, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who has met with protests at her every public appearance for one good solid reason. She's been on a nearly lifelong mission to privatize public education. As Diane Ravitch, herself a former Republican appointee as an assistant secretary of education, writes in a new piece at the New Republic, the blame for DeVos's rise is bipartisan, even if Democrats and two Republicans did attempt to halt her ascent to the highest education office in the land. Ravitch writes, quote, listening to their cries of outrage, one might imagine that Democrats were America's undisputed champions of public education. But the resistance to DeVos obscured an inconvenient truth. Democrats have been promoting a conservative school reform agenda for the past three decades. Some did it because they fell for the myths of accountability and choice as magic bullets for better schools. Some did it because choice has centrist appeal. Others sold out public schools for campaign contributions from the charter industry and its Wall Street patrons. Whatever the motivations, the upshot is clear. The Democratic Party has lost its way on public education. In a very real sense, Democrats paved the way for DeVos and her plans to privatize the school system, end quote. It was Bill Clinton, Ravitch notes, who first championed the set of policies now known derisively or fawningly as education reform, back when Clinton was still governor of Arkansas. As president, he moved further in that direction, and by the time George W. Bush ran on a testing and vouchers platform, Ted Kennedy was willing to work with the administration on No Child Left Behind. Barack Obama campaigned against No Child Left Behind, but put a hardcore reformer in charge of education in Arne Duncan, charter, charter school cheerleader. 
and listeners to this podcast know all about the pro-charter policies of Rahm Emanuel, Cory Booker, and Andrew Cuomo. Wall Street money is one reason why, Ravitch argues, as Democrats learned years ago, support for mandatory testing in charter schools opens fat wallets on Wall Street. Money guys love deregulation, testing, big data, and union busting. Democrats for Education Reform has bundled big money donations to Dems like Booker and Cuomo. But more important than just the moral ickiness of cozying up with capital, Ravitch argues, quote, school choice doesn't work and evidence-based Democrats ought to acknowledge it. Charter schools are a failed experiment. Study after study has shown they do not get better test scores in public schools unless they screen out English language learners and students with profound disabilities. It's well established that school choice increases segregation rather than giving low-income students better opportunities and kids using vouchers actually lose ground in private schools. Support for charters is paving the way for a dual school system, one that is allowed to choose the students it wants, and another that is required to accept all who enroll. End quote. After the party's stomping in 2016, Ravitch notes, enthusiastic teachers' unions should be a part of the plan for rebuilding, and that means Democrats have to fight as hard as they fought against DeVos, or harder, against the industry that they helped prop up. Because public schools, it turns out, are popular, and from Newark to Chicago to Daytona Beach, students are willing to fight for education and against DeVos' agenda. They need champions in elected office. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks, as always, for listening, for sharing Belabored with your friends and coworkers, for reviewing us on iTunes, and a special thanks to our donors and sustaining members. For $5 a month, you can sign up to be a sustaining member as well and get your excellent Belabored tote bag. You can find information about that and links to everything we've discussed today at dissentmagazine.org. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org if you are an AT&T worker or in a call center overseas. If you are voting labor or fighting austerity in Puerto Rico, you can always reach us there. Thanks, and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.